Well, dear saints, I greet you again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you once more on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the letter of Revelation, the uh, Apocalypse of John. And this morning, we come now to the third church that our Lord Jesus Christ addresses. It is the church of Pergamum. Pergamum. And there is much that our Lord says to the church of Pergamum that is for not only our benefit today, but for the benefit of all the church for all times. Uh, some background. Pergamum was the headquarters of the Roman government and the center of pagan worship during that time in Asia Minor. Uh, Michael Winlock on the prominence of Pergamum says, if Ephesus, the first church that we considered, was the New York of Asia, Pergamum was its Washington, D.C. For there, the Roman imperial power had its seat of government. It's no wonder then why our Lord says, I know where you live, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was a large and important city, uh, one that had a high terrace filled with temples and government buildings. Uh, many different pagan gods had their headquarters there, their, their main temples of worship there. False gods like Zeus, Athene, Dionysus, Asclepius, all received worship and had cultic attention and had even their, their own temples there. When it came to worshiping the gods of the empire of Rome, Pergamum was the place to be. No matter what you desired, no matter what you needed, no matter what you dreamt of, there was a pagan god available to be called upon to meet all of your selfish desires. Zeus, for example, was the king of Mount Olympus, where all of the gods and goddesses dwelt in this pagan world. He was known as the king of kings. He was the God of the sky, they said. He was the God of thunder and lightning, they said. He was the God who would strike enemies down with lightning. There was, in fact, a throne-like altar that was dedicated to Zeus there in Pergamum. And it may also be another reason yet why Christ refers to Pergamum as, I know where you dwell, where Satan has his throne. For those who wanted pleasure... Uh, maybe not power from Zeus, but those who wanted pleasure, they would go to the, the false god, the temple of Dionysius, the god who was the god of wine and revelry, uh, those who were seeking some kind of uh, physical uh, pleasure. They would go to this temple of worship and they would get drunk with wine. They would participate in orgies. Sometimes the frenzy would get so great that someone, someone's life would be offered up as a sacrifice in the end of their orgy. For those who were in need of food, they would go to the temple of the false goddess Demeter. It was believed that she could guarantee food and crops. For those who were in need of physical healing, they would go to the temple of Asclepius, the false god of healing. Pilgrims would come from all over the world to seek healing from this false god. Asclepius was known as the god of healing and was symbolized by a coiled serpent. Yet another reason why Christ may have said, I know where you dwell, for Satan has his throne. It was the first 
and major city in Asia Minor to build a temple to the Roman ruler Caesar Augustus. And it was the capital of the whole area for the cult of the emperor. The city proudly referred to itself as this, the temple warden. Uh, the temple warden of a temple because there was a temple that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus. And there, in the city where Satan had his throne, there in Pergamum, where the masses would gather to worship the variety of gods, there, in, in that context, there gathered a people who worshipped not Zeus, not Asclepius, not Demeter and the variety of other false gods, but those who worship the one true and living God. Not only did they worship the one and true living God, but they were known by Christ. The church of Pergamon. And I'm going to emphasize this over and over again. Our brothers and sisters. So that when we are reading through Revelation, we, we don't find a disconnection between us and them. They are our brothers they were our brothers and sisters who were living in that context. And can you imagine in that kind of atmosphere where paganism was rampant? Can you imagine the difficulty that it would have been to openly worship not the pantheon of gods, but the one true and living God? The, the, the opposition that they would experience, the persecution even that they did experience. It was in this context, that context, that our Lord Jesus Christ expresses or addresses the church of Pergamum. And he encourages them in the midst of persecution, but also rebukes them for tolerating those who are embracing false teaching among them. This morning then, saints, with God's help, we shall consider resisting the pool of compromise and holding fast to Christ. Resisting the pool of compromise. And holding fast to Christ. Number one, encouragement amidst persecution. Let's read again verse 12 and 13 if you don't mind. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan has his throne. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Thus far, our Lord has addressed the church of Ephesus. Ephesus who was equipped with the truth but rebuked for their lack of witnessing in love. The church of Smyrna equipped with the truth and encouraged not to fear the tribulation that would arise as they remained faithful to Christ. And today, the church of Pergamum living in the city where Satan dwells and being warned against embracing false teaching from within. Our Lord begins his address by taking from the vision that John received from the glorified Christ. He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's the way he introduces himself. And you will notice that each time the Lord addresses each church, his presentation of himself is specifically connected to a matter that the church is facing, to the church of Ephesus. Christ is he who walks among the lampstands. He is the one who walks among the church. And because he is the light, he gives the church its light. But because of their lack of love for the world, 
Christ threatens to take his light away. The church of Smyrna. Christ is the first and the last. He is the one who was dead and yet is alive forevermore. And Christ presents himself as this because he's encouraging the church to be faithful even unto death. That as they are faithful even unto death, that they would not suffer the second death. He could promise to them a crown of life and protection. And now to the church of Pergamum, Christ is the the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Christ, as we know, is the word of God become flesh. The word of Christ is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. The word of Christ penetrates even to the dividing of soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. Christ and his word, it judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Christ introduces himself because he intends to, to bring a sharp word of rebuke to the church of Pergamum. He's threatening them. He is threatening them with a sword. He is threatening them with a sword if they do not repent of their sin. Uh, the purity of the church was being threatened. False doctrine was attempting to infiltrate the church. So Christ brings his sword and says, remove it. Remove the false teaching. But before his rebuke, he gives a word of encouragement. The Lord affirms to the church of Pergamum what he affirms to all of the churches for all times. And it is this. First in verse 13. I know. I know. To all of the seven churches, Christ says the exact same thing to all of them. I know. Christ is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. There is nothing that passes his knowledge. There is nothing that his piercing eyes do not see. Christ knows. And if there is something that we can all be encouraged of each time that we gather, it is this. Christ knows. What does he know? Well, he knows where we dwell, but he knows where they dwelled, where Satan's throne is. And the encouragement is this, in spite of the fact that they live where Satan's throne is, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness or my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives. Christ has seen the church of Pergamum. The true church, that they, the true church, and we're going to, I think as we maneuver through this sermon, we're going to see the distinction between true church and those who are not. The true church has held fast to his name. The Lord further explains what he means by holding fast when he says, you did not deny my faith. That could be rendered faith in me. You, you did not deny faith in me. And the church of Pergamum did not turn away from their faith in Christ, even when they were faced and tested with persecution. Again, Pergamum was the city that was devoted to the pantheon of pagan deities and the Roman imperial cult. And so our brothers also, they would have, because of the Roman imperial cult, our brothers would have faced immense pressure to bow their knee to the gods they would have faced immense persecution even and it would intensify as the years went on to bow their knee to the variety of gods to confess that caesar is lord and not christ 
worship of the gods. It was a central part of Roman life. It was, if you think of something being cultural, it was a part, it was embedded in the culture. It was, it was what everyone did. Nearly every aspect of all normal life involved the worship of false gods. When we speak about cultural norms today, we might look around our society and see that that maybe worship is not central in our society, that that maybe uh, so few are concerned with worship in our society. But if you think about it, society as a whole is absorbed with worship. But they are absorbed with the worship of self. Even though they would not call it worship, all the elements of worship are present. There's a self-exalting, There's a self-absorbed. There's a push for self-love. There's no longer a worship of the false gods per se. We are the false gods. The same was true in Pergamum. But there were deities that were designated for all of those personal elements that you desired. The pursuit of their worship was ultimately to satisfy some kind of selfish desire or some kind of selfish pleasure. But they had a God designated for those things. Today, in our culture, we are the gods. In a city filled with worship of false gods, the church of Pergamum, the faithful ones, would only bow their knee to the one true and living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. They affirm that Christ is King of Kings, not Zeus. They affirm that their true satisfaction and joy and and everlasting pleasure is found in Christ, not Dionysius. They affirm that Christ is their provider, not the false god Demeter. They affirm that Christ, that Christ heals us, that Christ heals our spiritual infirmities, not Asclepius. And they were living in a world in which they were going against the cultural norms. It was because of their affirmations of Christ and their refusal to deny him and his faith. That our brother Antipas was killed. And he was killed among them, Christ says. It could be that that Antipas was was killed in their presence. It's very possible. It could be that they had witnessed the death of our brother. And dear ones, commentators after commentator acknowledge that we do not know the, the details of the death of our brother Antipas. But I would like to all, for all of us to, to be encouraged with this. We should revere the name of our brother Antipas. Our Christ refers to him not only as my witness, but Christ referred to him, refers to Antipas also as my faithful one. Though we do not know the circumstances surrounding his martyrdom, we do know this. Our brother was faithful. Our brother would not compromise his witness to Christ. Our brother was faithful to Christ even unto death. So many of us say that we would die for Christ, that we would go to jail for Christ, but we won't even attend church on a regular basis. The very place that Christ has promised to meet with us. What were the circumstances surrounding 
the death of our brother Antipas? We don't know. But we know that it had something to do with being faithful to Christ when he was pressured to be unfaithful to Christ. What were the circumstances surrounding our brother Antipas' death? We don't know, but he was a faithful witness to Christ. That so much, or, or that this might be said about us, brothers and sisters, that, that we were faithful to Christ, that, that we were his faithful ones. As far as we know, Antipas never preached a sermon. As far as we know, he, he never earned any, any degrees of education. As far as we know, he never wrote a book. As far as we know, he was never a keynote speaker at a, at a prestigious conference. Never built an ornate place of worship. All of those things that we hail as being admirable. And please don't misunderstand me. Those things are wonderful. Please don't misunderstand me. But at the end of this life, at the end of his life, possibly absent of all of those things, he's regarded with the highest of accolades from the only one who truly matters. The Lord Jesus Christ calls our brother faithful witness and not just a faithful witness my faithful witness my faithful one do you not want that to be said about you at the end you may never preach a sermon you may never write a book Uh, you may never build any kind of buildings you may not be requested anywhere to speak but if you are faithful unto death Christ will refer to you as my faithful one. My faithful witness. And dear ones, I pray that that is all of our desires. That people just be faithful until the very end of our lives. That we would be received by Christ with the welcome of well done. Well done. Could be that this death took place in the presence of the church. It could be that even Antipas was killed by the sword. Which is why Christ says, if you don't repent, then I will come with a sword. What would you do, dear saints? If one of us, if one of us was killed by the sword, not just one of your elders, one of us was killed by the sword in your presence, would you hold fast to the name of Christ and not deny the faith? What would you do? Would you scatter? The church was commended for holding fast, for not denying the faith, for being unashamed of the name that is above every name, the name of Christ. The faithful of the church of Pergamum would not deny Christ, and they were commended for it. Brothers and sisters, the same commendation is to you. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. You may be wondering, must we be told again, hold fast to Christ? Is there not another way in which you could exhort us this morning than what you exhorted us with last week and the week before? Hold fast to Christ. Is there something more that you could say to us? Let me ask you this. How many times a day, how many times a week, how many times a month are you confronted with the option or temptation of being unfaithful to Christ. Whatever context you find yourself in, 
We are constantly being opposed. Whatever context you find yourself, you could be a stay-at-home mom or a work-every-single-day, nine-to-five husband, whatever you may find yourself in. You are constantly being opposed. You are constantly being pressured. Pressured. You, you are being threatened in some kind of way, shape or form, to be unfaithful to Christ. Dear ones, let our brother Antipas be an example for all of us this morning. Hold fast to Christ. Do not deny the faith. Be His faithful ones in spite of what opposition comes your way. Hold fast to Christ. You need to hear it again. I need to hear it again. Again and again and again. In the same way that we need to hear the gospel. That he is still risen. Tell me again, pastor. Is it still good news? Yes, it's still good news. And tell you again, dear saints. And hold fast to Christ. Because Christ is still risen. Hold fast to Christ. No matter the cost, do not deny his name. Secondly. Rebuke for those who compromise. Verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, and there's a variety of ways to pronounce it as well, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to not, and to commit acts of immorality. Our glorified Lord uses an example from the book of Numbers 22, 23 and onward in order to illustrate what his piercing eyes see. Balaam was a false prophet. Let's make that clear. When you're reading through Numbers, there could be some kind of, some kind of confusion. He was a false prophet. And he sought fame and fortune through the misuse of the name of the word of God. It's what all false prophets do. He was hired by Balak, Balak, the king of Moab. And he was set on assignment by the king of Moab to curse Israel with a curse of destruction. The curse of destruction failed, though, because each time the false prophet Balaam began to speak, the Holy Spirit took hold of his tongue. And rather than cursing the people of Israel, the people of God, he began to bless the people of God. Like Satan Pergamum, Balaam realized that persecution of the people of God only strengthened the people of God. And so in order to, to gain a reward from the king of, of Moab, Balak, that's because that's what false prophets want, Balaam changes his tactics. In order to, to truly affect the people of God, he encourages Balak to send pagan daughters of Moab into the Israelite camp to lure men to sins of adultery and fornication. Numbers 25 records a dark day in the history of Israel. Because on that day, the Lord slayed, imagine this, 24,000 people by plague of death for giving in to the sinful seduction of the Moabite women who would lead these men after pagan gods. How does this incident connect with what was going on in the church of Pergamum? Well, our Lord continues, I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold to the teachings of, of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What was the stumbling block? It, it was a similar offense 
verse 14, to eat things, listen to this, sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The issue in the church of Pergamum was really the opposite of the church of Ephesus. Whereas Ephesus, in Ephesus, there was an overemphasis on, listen, internal doctrinal purity. And listen to how I say that, an overemphasis on internal doctrinal purity that led to a cold-hearted love for evangelism. Church of Pergamum had a de-emphasis on internal doctrinal purity, which led to a more sympathetic and even accepting view of the false teachings around them. Church of Ephesus, very tight in doctrinal purity, but caused them to be cold to the outside world. Church of Pergamum, very loving toward the outside world, if you will, but very compromising when it came to the, to the doctrine of the doctrinal purity of the church. That seems to be the issue in Pergamum. False teaching. And not just, listen, the, ex- the existence of it, but the acceptance of it. The church had withstood external pressure to compromise with the pagan governmental religious authorities to deny Christ. They would stand with that. They, they would not deny Christ. But they apparently had accepted or tolerated some form of compromise internally by accepting the worship of Christ, yes, and also other gods and their false teachings. And this began to affect the purity of the church. The incident from the book of Numbers is used because the false teachers were arguing that believers could have closer relationships with pagan cultures, institutions, and also embrace Christianity. It was a mixed bag, if you will. They could embrace both, is what was being taught, with no conflict. In Numbers, the people of God were committing acts of idolatry when they were led astray by the Moabite women and joined them in the worship of pagan gods, believing that they could do both. It was a compromise of worship, though, which resulted ultimately in both places, in both incidents, I should say, of idolatry. So also the church was eating food that had been sacrificed, offered up to idols. Now, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians, and he makes this argument that if you eat food that has been offered up to idols, but you've bought it in the marketplace without partaking in the worship of that idol, then you commit no sin. But if you join those in the offering of that food to the idols as a part of that ritual, and you eat the food as a part of that ritual, then you are, then you are fellowshipping with demons. And you are not fellowshipping with Christ. It may have been because of the martyrdom of Antipas. It may have been because Antipas was killed that the church began to rethink their approach to the culture. It's possible. Seeing Antipas die, there may have been some who reasoned, maybe there was a way to avoid the fate of Antipas. Maybe we could join the pagan cultures, but, but not do so with a sincere heart. Meaning, Maybe I could join them in their paganism, but I don't really believe it. And since I don't really believe it, there's no sin or offense against God. I'm really not committing treason against God if I don't really sincerely come to these things by faith. I truly believe in Christ, but if I'm doing these things on the other side, 
but not truly believing in them, what harm is there? If it saves my life, then I'll just go with the flow. They also believe that because they're saved by grace through faith, that any sins that they committed would be forgiven. So they believed that there was a possibility they could just sin, willfully sin, God would forgive them of their sin, and they could continue to move on by the grace of Christ. These false teachers were encouraging participation in idol feasts because, or as being permissible by Christ. They were off, they were, they were only empty gestures, they would say. And again, if it meant sparing one's life, then how harmful could it really be? Just like the false prophet Balaam, they most likely believed that they would be blessed, the false teachers, by their instruction to compromise. They believed that they could actually correct true doctrine rather than oppose it. Many of us are often puzzled when we see false teachers, aren't we? Don't you often ask when you see them, do they really believe what they're teaching? Do they know that they're being deceptive? I've, I've been asked that many, many times in my years of, of walking with Christ. Does the false teacher know that they're teaching false doctrine? I do believe that they, they do believe that they are truly teaching true doctrine. Does anyone continue in deception when they know that they are being deceived? I don't believe so. I could be wrong. But I believe that they are deceived by Satan. And I believe that Satan uses them to deceive others. But I truly believe that they believe the deception that they are preaching is being true, as is being right and true. The parallel from Numbers is mainly used not necessarily because the church of Pergamum was committing adultery, but really that they were committing idolatry. In a city where the gods were worshipped, the church of Pergamum was giving in and compromising and allowing this continuing, or this accepting, I should say, of the worship of false gods. The the Nicolaitans, excuse me, were also apparently gaining a foothold in the church. Now, there are some who suggest that the Nicolaitans could simply be another name for Balaam, since in Hebrew and in Greek, their names mean the same thing. Here's what their names mean. And it's important as we move forward. Their names mean he who overcomes or he who conquers people. The matter still remains the same. Sinful compromise. It is essentially this. Having one foot in the church. Let me slow down. And one foot in the world. Notice that the indictment against the church is not so much the presence of these teachings existing in Pergamum. It's that they were existing in the church. They had slithered their way into the church and the church was not taking the proper measures to remove the head of the snake from among them. Instead, the church was tolerating false teaching. Instead, the church was tolerating the poison being 
given to the church and that was infecting the church. The responsibility of the church is to remove false teaching from among you. Let me say this emphatically. Church, it is your responsibility, our responsibility, to not tolerate false teaching, to give no place to heresy, to guard the pulpit and to guard the people from the doctrines of demons. You are to protect the purity of the church. The church of Pergamum was not being vigilant in guarding the people of God from Satan. What does our Lord say? You have some there. Who? You have, you have some, you being the church, and some are the false teachers. You have some among you who are spreading poison to his sheep. Christ, I hope that you see, is making the distinction between the sheep and the wolves in sheep's clothing. The sheep and the wolves were being allowed to coexist. The only difference is that the, the wolves were not in sheep's clothing. They were outright wolves. The Apostle Paul, when he was preparing to depart on his missionary journey, warned the church of Ephesus and warns, warns all churches. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own, he says, your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. What's the command from the Apostle Paul? Be on guard. Be on guard. The, the NASB says, be on alert. The church must never harbor false teachers. We must never give them room to move among us, to be the little yeast that works for the whole loaf. The church of Pergamum was not expelling the sinful ones from the church. They were not calling them to repent. They were tolerating it. They were not practicing church discipline. Which is both their right and their responsibility. Saints, a church that does not practice church discipline, both formative and corrective, is not a true church. They are a derelict church. A church that is not serious about false teaching. A church that is not serious about sin. is a false church. Just like a parent who allows their child to misbehave with no consequences. They produce undisciplined adults. We, brothers and sisters, we must never tolerate or compromise with false teachings. Even if it means our stance and faithfulness to Christ will mean greater pressure and more intense persecution. We must never bend our knee. We are called to remain faithful even unto death. And there will be increasing pressure. We're seeing it now, aren't we? From abortion, the murder of infants, same-sex marriage, which is against the creative order and sinfully unnatural. This new fad, transgenderism, also, also sinfully unnatural. We are going to be pressured to embrace all religions as being an equal path to God. Dear saints, we must not tolerate any teachers who embrace these doctrines in the church and call you to compromise with the unbelieving world. No doctrines of devils can ever be spread among the members. 
we must be vigilant to protect the purity of the church. It's our responsibility by the help of the Holy Spirit to make sure that the light of Christ shines bright or our light will be taken away. It is our responsibility to ensure that salt enhancing flavor of the church remains or we will be good for nothing but to be thrown into the fire. Dear saints, take heed from the warning of our Lord. Do not compromise. Do not compromise. Again, one may be wondering, must we be admonished again not to compromise? Again, pastor, you're going to say, don't, please don't, don't compromise. Must I hear that again? Is there not other, another type of exhortation that you could give to us? Well, in the same way, I shall reply as I did my first point. How many times a day, a week, a month are you tempted to compromise? How many times are you not tempted to compromise when conversations arise and you are the one, sometimes the only one, with a biblical worldview in that little group of those who are conversating? And you're the one who's supposed to oppose them. Are you not tempted to just kind of slide out of the conversation? Are you not tempted to just say nothing? Are you not tempted to just laugh and smile and nod with things that you do not agree with? When topics about whose lives matter, what men and women do with their bodies... How our lives should be viewed and used. Are you not tempted to to slide into the background? uh, To agree so that you are not ostracized? Dear royal one of God. Get used to hearing that. It's what Christ refers to us as. Royal ones. We are part of his kingdom. Do not compromise. Hold fast to Christ. Be his faithful witness. Listen to the call and to the promise that Christ gives in conclusion. There is a name that he gives to you. There is a stone that he gives to you. There is manna that he promises for you if you hold fast and do not compromise. Uh, Let's conclude with our third point. The threat there is and the promise to the overcomer. Verse 16. Getting ahead of myself. Therefore repent. Or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. In Numbers, Balaam was threatened with the sword by the angel of the Lord. If he continued to oppose Israel. And we did not, he did not heed the warning. He was killed by the sword. And he will suffer the pain of the second death. The same result would be the case in Pergamum. If they did not repent. The Lord promised that they would be judged. If they did not uh, practice discipline in the church. What this entails is, is not really clear. It could be that the church would suffer greater persecution because of their unwillingness to repent. It could be that they would eventually and ultimately suffer 
at the final judgment seat of Christ when they stood before him. Whatever it is, we don't know exactly. But we do know this. There's a call to repent from the one who sees all. A call to repent from the one who will judge all. And his word is sharp, sharper than any sword they could ever experience from the Roman Empire. But there is hope, isn't there? Even for those who have been teaching the false, the false ideas and for those who have been embracing them. And I think that's fascinating. I think that when, when you are reading uh, the, the call to repent, the Lord is issuing that call to those who are in the church. Therefore, as this letter is being written to the church of Pergamum, those who are teaching false teachings are hearing this. And they have an opportunity by the grace of God to repent of their sin. Christ says, I see it. And can you imagine being the false teacher in the church? And you're one of them. You are given opportunity to repent. To turn from sin. What a gracious God we serve. What a gracious God we serve. How many of us were walking in false teachings? How many of us have come to this church saying, I walked away from a Pentecostal church. I walked away from a oneness church. I walked away from Mormonism. Praise be to God that He gave you an ear to hear what the Spirit of God says to His church. We were all there. None of us grew up reformed. Uh, None of us grew up knowing the doctrines of grace. None of us grew up having a theology proper. We, by the grace of God, were given ears to hear. The Spirit of God has enlightened our minds and given us grace and time to repent. Praise be to God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, And dear saints, we have that option today, don't we? It's being offered to you today. That if you hear what the Spirit of God says today, do not harden your hearts, but turn to Him. Praise be to God that He gives us opportunities to turn to Him in faith. The general message goes forth, and it's made available to all of those who hear. And it's also made profitable for us here this morning. Listen to what He says. And it's a play on what He said earlier, the teachings of the Nicolaitans and the teachings of Balaam. He says in verse 17, to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. Who overcomes the ones who are seeking to overcome you. To him who overcomes. Rather than being overcome, rather than being conquered by the teachings of Balaam, the Nicolaitans, or any other false teachings that are in this world, those who truly belong to Christ, the true church, they will overcome. In fact, Paul says in Romans that because we are in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. Now, uh, let me make a quick stop here. This does not mean that we will overcome and conquer all difficulties that come in our lives. We will experience difficulty. But by Christ, we will overcome all difficulties. Rather, we display that we are part of this kingdom. His kingdom. We do not succumb to pressure. We do not succumb to persecutions. Uh, We do not fear threats of the enemy. John says in 1 John 5, 4, This is the victory that Christ has overcome the world. Our faith. For those who overcome through Christ, and there is a threefold promise of reward. And very briefly, verse 17, I will give some of the hidden manna, one. I will give a white stone, two. And a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except he who receives it. Christ promises manna 
If you will remember that manna is that supernatural food that fell from heaven during the Exodus, enabling the people of God to be sustained in the desert. William Barclay comments, to eat of the hidden manna means to enjoy the blessings of the messianic age. And G.K. Beale writes, that the hidden manna, the manna is hidden, means that it will be revealed to God's people at the end of time and possibly to each at the time of death. Though no tangible evidence of this promise can be seen, overcomers must place their hope in the unseen word of God. We will be satisfied ultimately by Christ in the one-to-one way as Israel was, not necessarily, in a greater way, in a greater way. Uh, Christ is the bread from heaven. We, brothers and sisters, will be satisfied by Christ for all of our days. And Christ promises that we will be given a white stone A white stone was used in those days as a pass or an admission into special occasions. You could get into these special occasions if you had been given a white stone. It was your ticket into the special occasion. In the context, Christ is reversing this. You will be given, if you remain faithful, a white stone inviting you to a special occasion. And Christ is the one who is inviting you. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb, I believe. It is entrance into the eternal kingdom, I believe. The, the pagan society of Pergamum viewed Christians as being excluded from their celebrations. They were the ostracized one. We would, our brothers and sisters, and we, we would receive no white stone from them. Christ flips this analogy. I've got a white stone for you. You're invited to my, his celebration. You're invited to the greatest celebration of celebrations that there will ever be. You, brothers and sisters, because of your faith in Christ, will one day be rejoicing with saints from heaven, saints from old, saints from today. We will be rejoicing and lifting up our voices together as we worship the Lamb. And we will all be saying, I've got my white stone. Christ has invited me. Praise be to God. And on that stone is a name that is written. It's a new name. Christ gives to you a stone. And when you look on that stone, it's, it's, it's your new name. And it, it, it falls in line with the newness of the new creation. It, it, there will be a new heaven, a, a new earth. And likewise, you will be given a... You don't like your name? No problem. You got a new one coming soon. You'll be given a new name. Christ, behold, is making all things new. Revelation 21.2 describes the new Jerusalem as coming down out of heaven from God. So that the name of the writer, uh, the name the writer on overcomes becomes synonymous, I should say, with your new identity. Your new identity. To receive a, a new name is essentially to receive the victorious kingly name that Christ has and that he gives to us. The one that no one knows except Christ. The new name is a mark of your genuine membership in the community of the redeemed. Which, without it, entry into the celestial city, if you will. Entry into the city of God 
without that stone with your name it's impossible how beautiful is that how encouraging is that for those who were excluded to say I've got a stone coming though there's one coming with my name on it dear saints who do you worship do you long to have Christ refer to you as his faithful witness Will you hold fast to the name of Christ? Will you pledge to give no audience to false teachers, nor compromise your allegiance to the one true and living God? If so, the manna from heaven is being offered to you by the one who is the bread of life. He invites you, to you who have ears to hear, to listen to what the Spirit of God says to the church. And if you hear His voice, if you place your faith in Christ alone, you will be saved. From the youngest of you to the oldest of you. And you will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Your stone will be given to you. The feast that will take place in the new heaven, the new earth. And you will have a new name showing that you are truly a citizen of His eternal kingdom. Is there anything that the world can offer you that's better than that? Not in the least. Not in the least. Hold fast in the name of Christ. Hold fast. And I'll say it again. Do not compromise. Let us pray, dear ones.